Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Michael Calderon Show. We're so glad you could join us today, this Saturday, May 20th, 2017. And um, a couple of things uh, going on today. We do have a special guest, author Montgomery Granger, who will be coming on to talk about his book, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. And, uh, and also to talk about some other things that you perhaps didn't know about Gitmo. Um, so we'll have him uh, on the show. And uh, today, ironically, is Armed Forces Day. And uh, Armed Forces Day uh, happens the third, um, the third Saturday of the month in May. And uh, President Harry Truman led the effort to establish a single holiday for citizens to come together and to thank our military members for their patriotic service in support of our country. And um, back on August 31st, 1949, Secretary of Defense Lewis Johnson announced the creation of an Armed Forces Day to replace the separate Army, Navy, Marine Corps and Air Force Days. Uh, The single-day celebration stemmed from the unification of the armed forces under the one umbrella of the Department of Defense. So that's your little little history for the day. Um, So we're glad, again, that you could join us today. And, um, you know, some other things happening in the news. uh, Clearly, uh, uh, we've had a lot of issues going on in the news with with the whole uh, Russia and uh, Russian ties uh, to the president investigation and all the news that's been coming out of that uh, with the firing of uh, FBI director Comey. And uh, of course the president did arrive in Saudi Arabia earlier this or early this morning. And um, a lot of news uh, circling, circling around that and the trip uh, as well as uh, the appointment of uh former FBI director Mueller to, uh, to be a special prosecutor in the case. So we'll be, we'll be definitely uh, following that story uh, pretty closely, uh, pretty closely. Um, Cause I know, I know many of you uh, have been interested in, in everything that's been going on. And um, um, also uh, with today being armed forces day, you know, thank, thank all those who serve. Uh, active duty and retired members of the military, um, those that have, you know, uh, written a blank check at some point in their life to the United States. Um, we shouldn't just honor them one day a year. Uh, we should always thank thank all those who serve, not only our military, but also our first responders. We should always uh, thank them as well. You know, if you see one in a restaurant, Buy them a cup of coffee, um, pay for their lunch, you know, show them that that we do appreciate we do appreciate their service because, you know what, they're uh, they're really putting themselves out on the line for us. So definitely you want to uh, we want to show our appreciation uh, to those that have uh, that have continued to serve and and have previously served. Um, I also want to uh, give a special shout out. Um, to uh, to a couple that uh, that I'll be officiating at their wedding later today, Diane and Gustavo. I will see you later today. 
I'm looking forward to that wedding. And, uh, you know, uh, with it being Armed Forces Day, I think uh, I think it's an appropriate time to start off the show with uh, the national anthem uh, sung by Janine Stang, uh, who's a good friend and uh, listener and supporter on this show and has been previously interviewed on this show. And certainly, if you want to hear any of the previous shows, some of the previous shows are uploaded uh, on our show page. If you go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Michael Calderon show. Okay. So, so do that. And, uh, and uh, we'd love, we'd love to, uh, to get some comments and some messages for, from you. Okay. So we're going to go to the national anthem uh, by Janine Stang. What a wonderful, wonderful song uh, done by Jane Stang. She has an amazing voice, and uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to um, to see some of her other music, um, you can go to iTunes and uh, and download one of her albums. Uh, before she she started her tour singing the national anthem, she did um, she did sing music. So. Um, definitely you want to check out, check out her music. Um, and also, uh, you know, we continue prayers for Julio and Andrea Peralta. Uh, Julio is an active duty serviceman. Um, and, uh, Andrea, his wife, um, has been undergoing, uh, surgery, multiple surgeries uh, due to some, uh, some medical issues. So we ask that, uh, that you would keep the family in prayer. Uh, we're going to now uh, connect with Montgomery Granger. And uh, Monty, how are you today? 
Monty, are you there? Try this one here. Montgomery, how are you? Okay, we're trying to uh, to connect with Montgomery Granger. Monty, are you there? I'm here. <laughs> All right, wonderful. Wonderful. So glad you could join us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me on. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, so you know, we have a lot to talk about. And uh, and first, first and foremost, I want to thank you for your service. You know, ironically, uh, today is Armed Forces Day. And, um, you know, scheduling you to come on the show, um, it, I, I didn't realize that it was going to be Armed Forces Day, by the way. So <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so ironically, uh, you know, God has a way of making things work out pretty nicely, I must say. Um, I think so. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about, um, I, I want to talk about Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. I'm of a citizen warrior. And, and talk, about, uh, talk about your time in the service and, uh, and your time at Gitmo. Um, and and your background. So so let's I guess let's first talk about your background and uh and kind of what led you into service. Yeah, I don't know uh how many of your listeners have uh ever seen that uh, Bill Murray movie uh about getting into the army. What was the name of that show? Uh, uh anyhow, he was sitting at home feeling sorry for himself and he had a bet with a, a friend of his that uh, if he could not do one push-up, he would get into the Army. They would both have to join. <laughs> okay. so his girlfriend left him. He lost his job. He still, so he, sure enough, he can't can't do the push-up, so he gets into the Army. And uh, my story is not that similar, but uh, what happened was I sort of borrowed my financial future away. I went to undergraduate school, graduate school, borrowed the money, and uh, had gone home to California after going to school in Alabama and New York City and had three part-time jobs, was just trying to make ends meet, renting a house with a friend and a brother, and uh, saw this commercial, uh, you know, in the Bill Murray movie, they saw the Be All You Can Be commercial to join the Army. Mine was loan repayment. And then it occurred to me, you know what, I'm a a health and phys ed teacher. Wouldn't it be great to become a U.S. Army medic? Because I'd always been fascinated with medics uh, in the movies and uh, you know anything I could get my hands on to re- read about medics and actually even uh, enemy prisoner of war operations uh, fascinated me. And I thought, great, I can serve my country, I can earn a little money, I can learn a new skill that will help me in my profession, uh, and I can get my loans repaid. So I signed up and, sure enough, became a combat medic for five years. Uh, the U.S. government paid off every penny of my loans plus interest. And nice. I was at a cross. I was at a crossroads at at the time. I returned to New York to be with um, my future wife, whom I'd met in graduate school there, and decided to uh, stay and become an officer. So I went to officer candidate school, became a medical service corps officer and uh, spent 17 years doing that. And, of course, everything changed for everyone. Um, 
on 9-11. Uh, I was a tenured uh, school district administrator at the time, um, just a few miles from my home in Long Island, and spent about a week at headquarters in Uniondale, headquarters of the 800th Military Police Brigade Enemy Prisoner of War Operations, and, um, you know, it just changed everything. Uh, I remember at the end of that one week, the commanding general got my small liaison detachment together and said, pack your bags. We're going to be going somewhere. We don't know where yet, but we're going to be going. And the idea was we were the only enemy prisoner war brigade pretty much in in the Army inventory. You don't need combat support or combat service support if there's no war. So many of those right. units, Michael, end up, end up being reserve or National Guard units. National Guard, more the combat arms, and the reserves, more the medical, transportation, enemy prisoner of war, etc. So um, our commanders uh, were going to Washington, D.C. Uh, they are having lots of meetings about where we are going to hold uh, these captives. And while that's all going on, uh, there was an uprising in the fall of 2001 at a military detention facility in Afghanistan in Mazari Sharif that uh, took the life of Johnny Michael Spann, who was a CIA uh, field operations specialist who was doing interviews at this detention facility. And there was an uprising in which he was killed. It was the first casualty. Uh, of the this modern when? global war on terror. This was this the fall of 2001. Okay. And um, so that kind of told us we, we cannot safely and securely hold unlawful combatants in the theater. Uh, typically, you want to keep the detainees or prisoners of war as close to, um, you know, the the countries that are at war as possible because the idea is when hostilities end, you repatriate the POWs. Uh, Unfortunately, these were not POWs. They didn't earn that distinction because they were not operating within the law of war or within the Geneva Conventions. So they were deemed unlawful combatants. In fact, they're entitled to no extra legal privileges or any rights whatsoever. However, uh, as you and your listeners and myself, as we all know, uh, we kept them alive because they had valuable information or had the potential for valuable information to save many lives. Uh, so because it was too dangerous to keep them in theater, and by the way, during the first Gulf War, when thousands of Iraqi soldiers in uniform threw up their hands, we did put them into POW camps. And uh, within a week to 10 days, they were all repatriated after the end of hostilities because they were lawful combatants. So now we needed a place to hold these guys that was safe, secure, and would allow us to conduct the business of interrogation. So uh, we talked about Guam. We talked about Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. We talked about Hawaii. We all voted for Hawaii, by the way, (laughs) but that didn't matter. Actually, after each idea came up, everybody said Gitmo again. Uh, logistically, it was perfect location. Uh, we had uh, facilities that we could hastily 
get back into shape after the Haitian crisis. Uh, we had actually built to the common person dog kennels, which were concrete slabs with chain link fence separating uh, sections of individual cells. Those were constructed because during um, uh, the Haitian crisis, uh, it was noticed that there were troublemakers among them. So anybody who was making trouble or causing problems would be isolated in this part of the camp. So we had those we could stand up quickly. Uh, but as anyone who's ever been in the military, especially in the Army, knows when you're deployed and you get on the ground, you improve your foxhole every day. Right. So we could, on, we could only improve Camp X-Ray so much each day. So as soon as, basically, when we got there, we started building Camp Delta, which was a more robust uh, and better facility for everybody. I talk about that in my book. In fact, Camp X-Ray, which, you know, a lot of people see that famous picture of, uh, and I actually have uh, on the cover of my book, a picture of the orange-clad unlawful combatants uh, in this holding area. And they're in that holding area anywhere from 5 to 35 minutes waiting to be in processed. So I think the, the impression that was spread and kind of was motivation for me writing the book was the misinformation put out by the mainstream media, including that photograph, which you will still see today. Yes. And articles written about Gitmo. Uh, but they will never explain the photo. Um, that these guys were just held there for several minutes um, in the shade, uh, being given water like I have in the cover of my book, um, before they're in processed. And the impression was, this is where they are all day, every day. And I just got sick of reading about and seeing the deception and the myths and the lies, the bold-faced lies, that were told about this place. And in fact, the... International Committee of the Red Cross physicians I worked with there and later in, in Iraq told me independently, without solicitation, no one does detention operations better than the United States. Mm. We are by far and away the absolute cream of the crop when it comes to taking care of bad guys. Right. And as I told you earlier in the conversation, when I was a teenager, I kind of studied... Um, United States POW operations. It fascinated me. Uh, you know, blame it on Hogan's Heroes, but it was it was a fascinating <laughs> subject to me. <laughs> you know, and uh, throughout history. And, and I just uh, I, I just want to point out uh, on page ninety five of your book, um, mm -hmm. you know, you quote General George Washington, uh, and the quote is, "Put none but Americans on guard tonight." Yes. And I yes, think and that's really important. Yeah, go ahead. It's really important. No, no, I, I'm, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes, obviously. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> uh, I think you need to be careful. There, it's interesting you bring that quote up because there are a couple of incidents at Gitmo where there was a Muslim Navy chaplain who got in trouble. A uh, guy I met when I was there, he kind of ran the place. He was just a Navy lieutenant. Uh, but he kind of ran the place because uh, the Marine general in charge, General Leonard, uh, kind of kowtowed to him. 
there was this really big misunderstanding, I think, and it continues to today, that the unlawful combatant detainees held at Guantanamo Bay should be treated like gold. And I understand it from the perspective of prison psychology because you want your detainee to be fat and happy. Right. Because they're more cooperative and it's less dangerous when they're like that. But you don't have to treat them uh, like they're at the Ritz Hotel. Correct. And what had happened, even before we got there in early February, when they stood the mission up in January, they put the Marine General in charge because he had been in charge during the Haitian crisis. Who better to put in charge? Well, the thing that most people don't understand, Michael, is that the only service that practices and trains for prisoner of uh, war operations is the Army. All, all the Marines, Air Force, and Navy are taught. All the Marines, Air Force, and Navy are taught how to do is to hold them until they can give them to uh, a proper facility, which are always run by the Army. So uh, we had an executive officer from the 800th MP Brigade do the, you know, the Washington D.C. Department of Defense, and uh, did a reconnoiter to Gitmo, and he was treated like a, a third cousin by the Marines and others who were at already at Gitmo uh, kind of looked at him sideways. He said, you know, we really shouldn't put them all in individual cells because, A, that's going to really be taxing on the MPs. We should save the cells for, like we did during the Haitian crisis, for the troublemakers, isolate them. No, they wanted them all isolated. They wanted a high-security situation which was very taxing on the guard force because every time that detainee had to be moved from the cell either to go to a uh, number two restroom or to a shower or to the exercise uh, area or to interrogation took two MPs to do that and so as the population grew you can kind of extrapolate that that was going to be extremely taxing on the guard force which you don't want you know, you don't want your guys doing 12-hour shifts seven days a week uh, in the hot sun all day. Uh, that's, that's not a good practice. Uh, but that's how it was set up when we got there. So this Navy chaplain kind of had the run of the place. Um, when the I remember very clearly when psychological operations got there, what they wanted to do is raise the U.S. flag at dawn each morning and play the national anthem. That lasted for about a day, and um, General Leonard put a stop to it. And the, the rationale was um, it's offensive to the detainees. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So, that is crazy. Yeah. So even today, there's no national anthem played, and they don't raise the flag in front of detainees. It's, it's as if they are in a Muslim country because they get free Qurans, free prayer rugs, prayer beads, Halal meals, special Muslim holiday meals, including baklava and lamb. They have um, directions to Mecca in their cells. They have directions to Mecca on guard towers, especially while I was there. And they, now they let them wear white robes and have beards. They let them have mosque tents. They give them the free services of U.S. military Muslim chaplains. So it's almost like a Muslim uh, rest and recreation spot. And the way the the rate at which Obama was releasing the worst of the worst, I mean, this is the varsity team. He talked about the JV team and being ISIS, but he released the varsity team back into the mm -hmm. game. 
Right. Uh, but these guys were well-fed, well-rested. Some of them uh, were treated better, had better health care uh, than they could expect their whole lives. Uh, so to me personally, it was, it was a little difficult to swallow. Yeah, I, you, you know, I, I have some difficulty with not raising the American flag and not playing the national anthem, especially because we have American service people there. You know, um, and as for the detainees, you know, you you can like it or not, but, you know, you're on technically you're on American soil when you're on that base. But, that, you know, I don't want to get off on a tangent on that because I could easily go there. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. It, it, you're correct. And, um, you know, that was really irritating to some of us. Now, my job, of course, was to coordinate medical, preventive medical, and environmental uh, care for detainees and also for good guys who were camped out there at Camp America, which was right above Camp X-Ray. So most of the people caring for them were out in tents, Uh, not air-conditioned, by the way. Nobody had air conditioning out there, Um, and it was rough on everybody. But, you know, thinking about the morale of the guard force, and since you know, 2002, there have been several stories and books of, of guards who have either empathized, sympathized, uh, or felt bad about their duty guarding these um, unlawful combatants. Uh, they felt guilty for the things that they did. It, w- it was not a uh, completely touchy-feely time. In fact, if a, if a detainee were not responding to commands from the guard force, they would be put down. And basically that is uh, four or five guys in uh, baseball catcher's outfits come in, put the detainee down on their face on the concrete floor of their cell, and hog time. Um, by Geneva and law of land warfare, you can keep a detainee in that position for up to two hours, or you can put them in a restraint chair for up to two hours, which was done. Uh, and there have been some guards who felt guilty about that. But, you know, these detainees are lucky to be alive. You know, there have been, right. what, 730, 730 released, and none of them, Michael, were executed, beheaded, hacked to death, dragged naked and lifeless through the streets, drowned or burned alive. Uh, so none of, no them, none of them... None, none of them were treated like Americans have been treated. Right. And there's absolutely right. uh, no moral comparison between how we treat detainees at Guantanamo Bay, which gets the worst press on the planet, and the way our enemies treat their captives. None. Yet hmm. we're the bad guys. We're, we're right. doing the wrong thing. Or, you know, we're, we're you know, taking away their rights. They have no rights. They abdicated those rights. Uh, when they picked up arms against us in the coalition of 39 other countries, which people forget also. Right. But the example I give in the second edition of my book, the soft cover, there's uh, some additional uh, comments by myself in there. One is pointing out that in 1942, eight dry foot German saboteurs were captured on U.S. soil, some on Long Island, New York, and some in Florida. Two of the eight flipped on the other six. And believe it or not, within eight weeks of their capture, six of them were executed. Now, let me point out that they were not given habeas corpus. Uh, they, they weren't given any 
any rights. They were tried by military commission, by unanimous decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. And they were tried and six were executed. But guess what? They hadn't hurt anybody. They didn't damage any property. They simply had the means to do it and the intent to do it. Every single detainee who's ever gone through Guantanamo Bay did worse than them because many of them, practically all of them, uh, had picked up arms and were engaged in uh, activities to kill Americans and destroy property. So if we if we played by the same rules we did in World War II, uh, we probably would have executed most of them, if not all of them. We released 730 of them back into the fight. And you know they say uh, the stat is, uh, I think it's from the National Security uh, Department, there's around 30% recidivism rate, known recidivism. So known or suspected, 30% of all released 18 detainees have joined the fight. Rejoin the fight. My question is, what about the other 70% we don't know about? Right. Nobody talks about that. I'm like, well, let's talk about the 70% we don't know about. We're assuming we know, you know, everything about this. What about these other guys? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So you fast forward to today, how many of those guys on the battlefield in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever have been to Gitmo? And it doesn't make any sense. In in fact, if you study uh, world history in in the specific area of detention or POWs and in the law, you can lawfully hold these guys until the end of hostilities. But the mainstream media and the left say, well, you know, it's a never-ending war. Well, no, it's not a never-ending war. Right. It's going to end. It may not end in our lifetime. It may not end tomorrow. But it's going to end sometime. And at that time... I mean, I like to say until or unless all these uh, radical Islamists are dead or no longer have the means or will to kill us, we need to defend ourselves. And part of that, call it a small part, but it's an essential part, is that Gitmo. Right. Because at the very least, they can't hurt anybody when they're at Gitmo. They can try, but they're not going to be able to partake in the battle on the battlefield and kill innocent people. And, and, and let me ask you a question. Thing. Let me ask you a question in terms of where where the actual prison is located in in, in relation to the rest of of the U.S. naval base. There uh, is it is it right on the same property? Is it adjoined to it? Where where is it in, yeah, in see, relation yeah, to that? Yeah, the the um, U.S. naval base Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, is about forty square miles of property at the mouth of the bay. And you have two sides to it. Uh, You have the leeward side, which holds the uh, large air base where big planes can come in. And then you have the windward side. The windward side is the built-up part. It's like any town in the USA, a small town. So you have a port. Uh, You have many moorings that were used uh, in the past uh, for large ships. You have uh, a main street where you have a Navy exchange, and at the end of the main street, there's a road that goes over um, a hill. You know, it's at the end of a mountain range. And on the other side of the hill are the detention facilities. 
uh, and it's, I'm not giving away any secrets here. You can look it up. You can Google it and see pictures of it. There are, there are uh, views from the detention center to uh, the ocean on the other side of uh, Guantanamo Bay, and that's pretty much the setup. So is it possible to go from the windward side to the leeward side? Or do you it have is, to leave the only base? When, when, yeah, when you leave the base, you go on, on the leeward side, you get a ferry over. So anyone who flies in has to take a ferry over to the windward side, which is great because you can really control things. In my day, uh, January to June 2002, when we stood the mission up, the press were only allowed on the windward side during the day. Uh, in the evening, they were ferried over, uh, and their accommodations were on the other side. And that began to change as my tour ended, uh, but we sequestered the press. And one of the reasons they were sequestered is because they would make stuff up. And I write about this in my book, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, there was a particular CNN correspondent over there, uh, whom I name in the book, and uh, he would like to take my boss out, who was the commandant of the camp, and try to get him inebriated and try to get information from him, especially at the time in April of 2002 <laughs> when we were, moving, we were moving detainees from Camp X-Ray to Camp Delta. He had to know. He had to know. He says, look, uh, I'm involved in a business. We've got to have these sound bites. We've got to have the information. You know, give it to me. I'll just make it up. He actually said those words. Hmm. So, you know, it was kind of shocking, but I'm... Um, other things that happened, my boss and I might go to breakfast at the at the uh, at the hospital uh, galley, and we'd see the crawl at the bottom of the, the CNN crawl, and it would say there was a riot last night in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I'd look at my boss and go, "Boss, was there a riot last night? I didn't know about." <laughs> no. <laughs> so I guess somebody yelling and screaming and heard it and told a, a, a CNN reporter, and that became a riot. So it kind of opened my eyes to what the press does. The press is a business. The MSM is a business. Uh, dog bites man is not a story. Man bites dog is a story, whether it happened or not. Right. Hey, yeah, and let me ask you in terms of in terms of um, the ferry going from one side to the other, from leeward to windward. Uh, and and I remember seeing a, a, a piece on that in the movie A Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson, you know, where right. they where they fly to Guantanamo. Um, do we have control over the waters that are there by the base? Right. It's interesting. So the deal is we can allow um, safe passage for Cuban vessels through the bay because up the bay is the Cuban uh, city of Guantanamo. It's a fairly large city. So what I discovered while I was there uh, through talking to various uh, folks was that uh, they give us uh, overflight permission. In other words, sometimes because of the winds, the approach to the leeward side airport requires us to fly over Cuban airspace. They allow that, and we allow free passage of Cuban vessels through uh, Guantanamo Bay. They are escorted, at least back when, when I was there, uh, but they are done. 
uh, they are let through. And there were also other agreements that were, while I was there, and I haven't read anything about them, there were several agreements. One is in the Cuban city of Guantanamo, they have a burn unit. And what I discovered working with the medical folks at Gitmo was that there was a deal where if we had a need for uh, a burn unit that we could transport uh, our personnel to that hospital and they receive care there. In fact, another thing I think I point out in the book, but you don't ever read or see a, anything about, is that we had monthly meetings with uh, Cuban officials uh, who have complete oversight, physical line of sight oversight over the entire operation in Guantanamo Bay from their side because the mountain is higher on their side. So they actually have complete and total visual contact over pretty much every inch of uh, the American base. Hmm. Okay. So so there's kind of like some mutual agreements in place that uh, that allow certain things to happen despite our not so good relationship with the Cuban government. Which is kind of, you know, that's it's kind of played up, um, you know, in the media that these are the bad guys, we're the good guys. But there's cooperation. Military folks have traditionally been very cooperative with one another. There's kind of a code of conduct. Uh, right. There's a way you go about your business in a professional way. And the profession of arms uh, has these courtesies going back to, you know, the times of the knights in shining armor, which is where the salute comes from. You lift your visor on your armored helmet uh, to show that you're a friendly person, and that's where the salute came from. But there are, there are many, many courtesies that are handed down through, through time that are still respected. And some of those have to do with POW operations, uh, whereas in, in um, World War II, the Germans had uh, Stalag Luft, or... Uh, prisons, prisoner of war camps just for aviators, whom they considered some of the best, you know, military folks. So if you were an aviator and you got captured, you go to the Stalag Luft, which was uh, a better place to be than just a regular old POW camp. Uh, and I think in the tradition of American POW operations, uh, Gitmo was established uh, in in that light. Uh, we have traditions. We are proud of what we do and how we do it. In fact, when my boss first got there, he uh, spoke directly with Don, Rum Don Rumsfeld, who told him that we would treat the detainees within the spirit of Geneva Conventions, even though they didn't earn the right to be treated under the Geneva Conventions. And so when we were told that, we were kind of relieved because that's the only way we train. You know, we never trained to mistreat someone, not right, to say right. there wasn't uh, any abuse ever there. There was abuse, but it was all minor abuse and was handed, handled very severely uh, toward the U.S. personnel who were responsible for the abuse. So we take pride in our, our work. Uh, we train for it. We're ready to do it. And I think any American who would have been able to observe uh, how we ran the place or run it now would be extremely impressed. In fact, uh, Neil Gorsuch, the newly appointed Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, made a visit there uh, some time ago and was amazed at how impressed 
uh, impressive the operation was. And it is an impressive operation. I, I believe every American can be proud of how we treat detainees uh, at Guantanamo Bay. Right, and 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 I think, you know, I I agree with you. I think there's a certain code of conduct that um, that is uh, that is unique to professional soldiers. Um, you know, regardless of what country they're from, there, there's a certain code of conduct that one follows. Um, is it safe to say that if there were an enemy combatant who who wound up in our custody, uh, that the U.S. Army would certainly treat them a certain way, possibly different than, you know, some of the terrorists that, uh, that we have in custody. Yeah. And we'd actually treat them better than the CIA. <laughs> uh, you know, the, that, that's kind of a bone of contention. I mean, I tell a story in the book about how, uh, we had a detainee exhibiting, very bizarre behavior. We called him Wild Bill. He had other names too, but he would, um, you know, take bites out of his flip flops. He'd, uh, you know, hang things from his genitals. He would yell and scream. And over time, what we discovered was that he was a schizophrenic off his meds, uh, also a heroin addict going through cold turkey withdrawal. Wow. So that explained the bizarre behavior. So it right. was determined, you know, that he was no longer a threat and that he was of no more intelligence value, which is the two-pronged test on whether or not you would be cleared for release. So my small unit was detailed by my boss to uh, transport him from the windward side to the leeward side. And we had to, we did it in such a way as to hide him from the press so there was an abandoned hospital on the leeward side, and we waited there for word that the Freedom Bird was on its way in. It was a couple hours. So we had a psych nurse with us. We had a translator with us, and we got to know this guy. Uh, that Yes, he did pick up an AK-47 in Kandahar. Yes, he did you know, participate in activities against the United States and the coalition, uh, but he he picked up the AK-47 to support his heroin uh, habit. Uh, so he was offered heroin if he came in and fought with uh, the Taliban. Wow. So eventually, so eventually we put him back on the, you know, the plane came, we put him on the plane, we went back. Um, and a couple weeks later, as we're searching for news and stories on the Internet about Guantanamo Bay, we pick up a an NBC.com story about this guy, and there's a picture in the story of him. And we go, whoa, look, it's Wild Bill. He's sitting on a mental hospital bed in Kandahar with a big smile on his face. We read the article, and he talks about how great he was treated at Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> but the reason we celebrate it was because a week after he was released, uh, my boss and another person in my unit went to a, a joint CIA-FBI barbecue. And at the barbecue, they were told that as soon as this guy hit the tarmac, he was killed. And, you know, okay, he's a bad guy. How bad should you feel? We got to know him a little bit. He's just a regular guy. And we're like, what? They put a bullet in this guy's head as soon as he hit the... And then here's the story a week later, completely, you know, 
opposite of what the CIA told my boss. <laughs> and and they're the only ones really who are trained to do waterboarding, which is not torture then, it's not torture now. It was you know, just didn't meet the definition of torture. And what I tell people in social media who argue with me about that is I say, look, words matter. Definitions of terms matter. You have to be able to put a definition together so you can define what it is you're trying to describe. And I put the definition uh, that was uh, relevant in 2005, the international definition of torture, in my book so people can read it and go, oh, that's torture. It, It doesn't mean abuse is okay. But it does mean that if there are approved enhanced interrogation techniques that don't meet the definition of torture, yet will yield information to save many lives, that's okay. And waterboarding, if done properly by trained CIA operatives, will yield information. Otherwise, they wouldn't use it. Right, right. And there, there are crazies out there who say, "No, oh, it's 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 torture because Obama says it's torture because as soon as Obama took office, he added that to the list of torture, without it meeting the definition. And since then, if you read other international definitions of torture, they're they're extremely generalized. You know, it used to be you had to cause uh, you know severe pain. Pain was the intention. Uh, you had to have, uh, you know, major organ failure, broken bones, things like that are obviously torture. Uh, but there are other techniques that you can use on human beings that will yield information that are not torture. And uh, that was one of them. And I think there's a misconception that, that the Army abused or tortured detainees. N- nobody in the Department of Defense uses these techniques. All we are ever taught is how to properly care for and protect someone in our custody. So so no one from the Army ever participates with any interrogations? Well, that's the plan. But as we found in Abu Ghraib, it's not always the reality. Right. And the big thing that that I think is missing from the media in Abu Ghraib was who told these kids from, uh, you know, Bug Tussle, Maryland, National Guard, who were not trained for a detention operation. They were military police, but there is a specialty for detention operations, EPW operations, enemy prisoner war operations. They had no training. Who told these kids to do what they did with it on their own? Mm. And they were in the hard site. I worked in Abu Ghraib in, um, for several months at the end of 2004, beginning 2005. And by that time, they had put all of the detainees out of the hard site. The hard site are buildings, prison buildings, that uh, during the scandal, all detainees were held inside. When I got there, they were all in tent cities. The only people still in the hard site were Iraqi prisoners from Iraqi uh, law enforcement. But back when the scandal happened, these guards' job was simply to move the detainees from point A to point B and then go back to point A and wait to be called to come back to point B to pick up the detainee and take them back to point A. That was it. But what happened in the scandal was these detainees were told by somebody 
to do what they did. These techniques, these abusive techniques, were not tortured at all, but it was abusive, could only come from what we call secret squirrels, alphabet soup guys. And to my knowledge, none of those were ever punished. There were maybe four intelligence people uh, in the military who were punished. But the people who were punished the most, obviously, were the people who conducted the abuse. But I think the big mystery here is where did that information come from? Where did that order come from? Who told them to do this? And it must have come from somewhere high up because they wouldn't have let them do it uh, if it wasn't part of a planned operation. Uh, but when I got there, my office was in the uh, reception area for uh, detainees. And I can surely tell you that after that scandal, we, di- we didn't even call it interrogation anymore. We called it an interview. And the interview was held in a building with no roof on it. So no matter what room you took somebody to, if somebody were yelling and screaming in pain, you could absolutely hear it. Uh, I-, I think, um, you know, it's a dark spot on in the history of the United States military, what happened in Abu Ghraib. But right. there are reasons for it, and we just have to protect ourselves against, uh, you know, doing things the improper way. Yeah, and there was a book, um, and right now I can't remember the name of it, uh, written by Jose Rodriguez, and he had been, he was either a deputy director of the CIA um, who oversaw he oversaw some of the operations and interrogations, and uh, I, right. I just I can't think about the uh, the title of the book. I read it a few years ago, um, but you know he talks about in the book he talks about some of the methods they were using, you know, without going into detail. Uh, but but I think there there is a popular misconception. Um, on who exactly is involved in interrogations and intelligence gathering, um, as well as who, in fact, you know, is overseeing the detention of the prisoners. Because, uh, right. you know, I, I did not know that, that it was the U.S. Army that that had the specialized, you know, uh, skills and, and unit to do that. And I think when people hear Guantanamo Bay, they automatically think of Navy and Marines. Um, Oh, yeah, sure. It was a a joint operation from the beginning. And uh, for your listeners, joint means every service was involved. The Coast Guard, Air Force, Navy, uh, Army, and Marine Corps were all involved in that operation. Uh, And that's par for the course now. But, indeed, the only of, of those branches that trained for enemy prisoner of war operations is the United States Army, and most of those are reservists. So it's interesting because a reservist will give you a lot more, and it's nothing against active duty with no civilian careers. But when right. you have reservists who are deployed, you, you're almost getting a double soldier. You're getting somebody, especially in enemy prisoner of war operations, you're getting... Uh, prison guards who do it in the civilian world. You're getting sheriff's deputies, who who was the commandant of Camp X-Ray, my boss. He was a sheriff's deputy. You you get all these people who are already involved in law enforcement, so they have this perspective, this experience, this wisdom, 
that they bring to the job that your active duty folk don't have. And, That's a and good point. Hands, That's a really good point. Hands down, everyone involved in enemy prisoner opera- operations from the first Gulf War, all those guys were reservists, Michael. Right. And some of those guys, what was interesting, what was told about that operation was that uh, they had to put up these hasty POW camps, and some of the guys in the units were carpenters on the outside. They were contractors. So they could help build these things because there weren't enough Army engineers to go around to build all the things they needed to go into the camp. So, uh, you know, your your Army Reservist, your National Guard soldier – is a double soldier. They bring so much more to the table. And again, it's not to take any anything away from the full-time uh, active duty folks, but it is right. an enhancement that's never talked about. You, know, you, you make you make a very very valid point because you know I uh, I was with the Broward County Sheriff's Office from 2000 to 2012, and many of my coworkers who were sheriff's deputies. Um, you know, were reservists in the military and they would, they would leave for six months to a year on deployment, you know, as part of their, their reserve duties. And, and, you know, they, they served pretty much in every branch of the service. And, and I know some of them did, did spend time at Gitmo and, and some of them, you know, most of them did go somewhere in the Middle East. And, and it's a very valid point that you bring up that, you know, you're you're kind of getting a, a, a much I'd say a much better uh, trained person, uh, not so much as being you know in terms of being a professional soldier, but I think a more well-rounded person because they have some other experience other than military. They know how to think outside the box. Military doesn't exactly, and correct yeah. me correct me if I'm wrong, but military doesn't want you to think outside the box. They want you to follow the specs to the dot. Uh, That's it. Yes and no. It depends on the situation. What I love about the Army in general is that there's a rule for everything. Yes. <laughs> but what the Germans complained about the American military in, in World War II was it didn't seem like we read our own manuals because we could uh, improvise. We would experiment. Right. We, w- we would find a way to accomplish a mission. And so at Gitmo, the way that we did that was we just – you know, things weren't set up like the mock POW camps that we trained right. in. So you improvise, that kind right. of thing. But as far as uh, the law of land warfare, the Geneva Conventions, there was no uh, reinvention. There was no creativity there. It is what it is. This is how you treat them. The creativity came in in not playing the national anthem, or, or as General Leonard liked to do on, on his last day there, went to every detainee and handed them candy. Wow. You know, that that messes with your mind a little bit. Like, are they the enemy or not? I mean, if they're enemy, we're not going to abuse them as a matter of course, but I don't think you should treat them like they're at the Ritz Hotel. Right, right. Yeah. I, I think and, that and, even though the detention center is not punishment, it's not a penal colony, it's not, you know, these aren't convicted bad guys, so we're not going to put them at hard labor, but you also don't have to treat them uh, like they're a guest in your home. Right. And do you think that And earlier in the interview, you, you talked about the Muslim chap who kind of right. kind of had free reign there uh, at at the uh, at the prison. Um, do, do you think uh, 
where where did that guy get that idea that he was he was the guy? Well, you could only assume it came from the commander, General Leonard. Right. And eventually he got shipped out because he was caught trying to smuggle out personal letters from detainees. Really? And wow. so there was this empathy between him and, and the detainees. There was this connection uh, that he felt uh, that it was okay to do that, which, of course, it's not. Correct. Uh, so Correct. should and, and we be giving them services? I, I think if they brought a Quran with them, fine, let them have a Quran. Why are we using taxpayer money to purchase Qurans, prayer rugs, prayer beads, and uh, white robes, which is an honor to them. It's an honor to wear a white robe. I would there wouldn't be anything white within a country mile if I was running the place. Right. You wear right. orange. That or or whatever, you know, wake me up lime green or you know, something else that says you broke the law of war. You broke the Geneva Conventions. You're an unlawful combatant being held by people you would surely kill if you had the opportunity. Correct. Correct, and and this happened. Um, the, these extended rights that they've been given has this been going on from day one, or? Oh, absolutely. It, it it's only gotten better. Now, some things I won't begrudge them. You want them to have, remember the fat and happy theory. If they're fat and happy, they're less dangerous. Uh, right. So you know, when they got there, we kind of joked and called them carrots, and we called Camp X-ray the garden. And when some of them started to go, we called them pumpkins because they, they had just had more food than they could ever uh, imagine before. But some things like, uh, you know, exercise facilities and uh, a library, you know, these, these are not necessarily uh, luxuries. They're, they're things to keep their minds occupied. While I was there, uh, you know, one detainee, as I was doing a, a health safety tour through the camp, held up a children's book and said, I'm learning English. I'm going, okay, whatever. It's you know you're you're occupying your mind. You're not uh, beating up on a on a guard or throwing urine and feces in, in their face. Uh, you're doing something productive. That's fine because again, the, these are not convictees. By the law of war, yes, they they have committed uh, an offense, but they haven't been convicted of anything. Uh, you know, and that fact you know kind of upset me when most of the press says, "Well, all these detainees are innocent." They're not innocent. They're not guilty. They're just being held until the end of hostility. Some of them were foot soldiers. You right. know, the, the idea that they were goat herders and, and shopkeepers, well, guess what? Your reservists and National Guardsmen are also, uh, you know, farmers, shopkeepers, police sure. are. You know, we all have another career. So, it, you know, the, for some reason, the mainstream media loved perpetuating myths about these guys. That they were just all innocent victims. Yeah, I mean, you know, it begs the question, does someone who is not an American citizen, who is being held outside of the United States, are they entitled to the same rights afforded an American citizen? You know, are they afforded the same rights as if they were being held by civilian authorities in the United States? Um or not? Well, there it's or not because there's no uh, precedent for it. In fact, the law of war is clear, and the Geneva Conventions are clear. 
You're either a, a, a combatant or you're not. And if you're not a combatant, what are you? Are you a doctor? Are you a protective right. person? You know, what is your status? And, again, what most people don't understand is that almost all of these detain, detainees, it was determined that they were enemy combatants on the battlefield. If there's a question to it, then they get a battlefield tribunal to determine their status. And that is the same standard of conviction in a grand jury in the United States of America. If you're convicted of, of a, a, a serious crime, a felony, you go before a grand jury, the burden of conviction is 51% rule. Right. So in other words, if it's more likely than not that you did the thing that you're being accused of doing, then you're going to go to trial. Well, the same standard would hold to a detainee in the ba- on the battlefield uh, whose status is uh, in question. They would go before a three-army uh, officer panel. They'd be able to present evidence and our side present evidence, and if it was more likely than not that the person was a bad guy, they go to Gitmo. Right. So all these guys were vetted in some way, shape, or form before they got to Gitmo. And guess what? Tens of thousands of detainees never made it to Gitmo. So these almost 800 guys who've been through there, and the 41 who remain there, are bad guys. They broke the law of war. They could have been executed on the battlefield. And the hmm. only reason they were kept alive is for information. But why would you send 730 of them back to the fight? With Correct. very few exceptions. Like Wild Bill was, was absolutely an exception. But I, I, rem- uh, I remember reading about him in your book. You know, I, yeah. I was uh, looking looking through the book last night because uh, it's actually been – coming up on two I actually it's already been two years since uh since I had received my copy of Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. Um believe it or not, two years flies by very fast. I have I have the note here that, that you wrote on uh twenty eighth of April two thousand fifteen. So that time flies. Wow, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I do remember. After, after you told me about that, I go, what? I did? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now I remember. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, kinda cool. yeah absolutely. I, I really appreciate um, your support, uh, your loyal support, uh, and your kindness, Mike. You've been really uh, very kind to me. I appreciate it. No, thank you. And, and you know, thank you for your service. Um, do you, uh, My pleasure. And, and let me know. If, if we're running short on time for you, because I know you have other things going on today. Um, in terms of waterboarding, and we talked about that a little earlier, mm-hmm. um, clearly waterboarding did occur at Gitmo. Yes. And, According uh, to um, President Bush wrote an autobiography. Um, and uh, Decision Points is the name of it. So there's couple really interesting chapters or or parts of that book that talk about Guantanamo Bay. And he admits, yes, quote, a handful of detainees were waterboarded, which yielded uh, valuable information that saved many lives. That's good enough for me. Then okay. you read Don Rumsfeld's you read Don Don Rumsfeld's autobiography, Known and Unknown. He has several parts in his book about Guantanamo Bay. And he's the one that, that, that emphasizes that no one 
in the Department of Defense is trained or does waterboarding. Strictly a CIA territory. Hmm. So I have a friend through social media, and she's kind of like the enemy to a lot of people. Uh, We mutually respect each other, um, but she is a Muslim. Okay. Uh, she calls herself a radicalized Muslim, Yvonne uh, Ridley, who uh, at the breakout of the global war on terror uh, was a very respected British journalist who was captured by the Taliban. At that time in her life, she was a Christian. And during the time she was held, uh, she made a deal with her captors that if she was released, she would look into Islam. Uh, she eventually did that and then converted to Islam. Hmm. Uh, she's very learned. She's an intelligent person. I call her a friend, but it, it is a friendship uh, that is professional. Yes. She interviewed me. She interviewed me, and I am quoted in her book called "Torture: Does It Work? Interrogation Issues and Effectiveness in the Global War on Terror." It's a very scholarly work. But I will tell you, I don't agree with her conclusions. Right. Um, She interviews people on both sides of the fence, and uh, it's an impressive work. Uh, But I just don't agree with her conclusions that waterboarding was torture. It didn't fit the definition, in in my opinion. Um, You know, but even from our president, uh, you know, hearing that or reading that in his autobiography, that only a handful, and I guess the total was maybe three, and they're all on trial at Gitmo. Um, and 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 I guess in in her work, she's she's against she's against waterboarding. Yeah, she she her opinion is waterboarding is absolutely torture. So basically, anything that makes the the person uncomfortable <laughs> is torture. Right. Um, I mean, some of what she has in the book is legitimate. I mean, yeah, if you pull somebody's fingernail out, it's disfigurement. So, yeah, that's that's being tortured. Um, if you break somebody's arm, if uh, you know, some of what she gets into is is kind of the gray area where you're not really supposed to, um, you know, threaten the person's life or their family. Right. Things that Gitmo detainees would do on a regular basis, which is why most guards, uh, people working in the camp, would cover their name tape because they would learn how to pronounce the guard's name and say, oh, Jones, you know, we're going to look up your family in the United States. They're all going to be dead before you get home kind of thing. That's actually considered torture. That's psychological torture. not allowed to do that. Um, And, you know, our enemy uses those techniques to... um, uh, really brutal ends. I mean, people used to say when, when they'd show these videos of ISIS beheading people, why are they so calm? Why are they just sitting? Well, they've been conditioned. Right. They've gone through this so many times, they put them through it over and over and over again, these mock executions, that they're calm. They think it's another mock execution when the real deal right. happens. Uh, that's not and, something and, that we do. And your dog agrees. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's rang the doorbell. Oh, my teenager. Of course. Of course. He's, he's a good dog. He's a rescue dog. Norwich Terrier. Okay. Bundle Very of cool. Fun. Very um, cool. You know, so, yeah, I, I'd, these, I'd love to. I'd love to have her on the show. 
Invite her to come <laughs> on the show. It's a him. He's getting a little crazy. You know, we we could have we could have a pretty interesting uh, debate on the show. You know, we'll have her. We'll have yeah, my uh, Golan, who who was on last weekend from Israel, from Tel Aviv. Uh-huh. I don't know if you if you follow her on social media, um, but uh, but that was also you know an interesting perspective. Well, I can I can easily put you in touch with her, and she's on social media, she's on Twitter, and uh, she's got a little bite to her, you know. But you have to kind of kind of look past that. Um, right. She she's polite and to a point, and then if someone's being a jerk to her, she'll you know she'll defend herself. Good but for her. I think deep down, deep down, there's a professional respect. I think she certainly respects me and my opinion, even though I rarely agree with her on anything. Uh, <laughs> we can have a dialogue. You know, it's true. I, you, you, you can agree to disagree. Exactly. Yeah. And we just value the opportunity to, uh, without killing each other, talk about things that. Uh, are important to us and try to find some common ground. She's very interesting because she converted to Islam and seems and very dedicated to it. And what was she before, before she converted? I'm not sure if she was Catholic or Protestant, but she did claim to be you know, semi-religious, brought up in a religious background, not actually practicing Christianity, um, but having been brought up in a, in a Christian uh, home. Um, you know, and she was a very aggressive, um, I'd say, very well-respected British journalist who had made her way to Afghanistan. Was captured actually before uh, she was captured. She was actually on her way out again because the the war had started. This was in the fall of 2001, just after 9/11. Uh, you know, as soon as it was predicted or known that the U.S. was going to go to war over there, she went over to Pakistan and got into Afghanistan. But when things started to get hot, she decided it was time to go. And the funny part of uh, the first book that she wrote about this experience is that she was almost at the border. She was almost across the border, and then this donkey she was riding on did something, and she fell off and said, bloody hell out loud. And she she was disguised as, you know, a local, and oh, that kind of got her in big trouble. She got captured. She was in there for several weeks. Um, but there was a very aggressive uh, effort by her colleagues to get her released uh, quickly, uh, which eventually did happen. But that book about her capture is uh, very fascinating. I'm sure she would love to talk to you about it and your audience sure. about it. What was her name again? Yvonne Ridley, R-I-D-L-E-Y. Okay. And uh, I think the name of her book, let me see if I can get it here, uh, is, yeah, the... the, the uh, Torture Doesn't Work, yeah, I, I see it here. That's, that's um, the one she just had published, but uh, her first book, the one about her capture, is called In the Hands of the Taliban. Hmm, okay. Okay. And that's her, her story. It's it's fascinating story. It's it, it's one of those things you think, wow, that's make a great movie. You know, 
which I hope is what people think when they read Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. That would be right. great. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I, I think uh, it's very, uh, very enlightening. Um, you know, I think um, if you haven't been over there, you know, serving in military operations, then all you know is what you see and hear in media. And clearly here in the United States, we have multiple problems with media, with alternative facts, with fake news, you know, you name it. Um, So, you know, to your point earlier, we, we really, we really don't know, you know, some people take it for, for, you know, uh, law when they see something on a, on a media outlet, you know, on, on a banner or, you know, breaking news bulletin, they take it as that's factual, a hundred percent factual. And I think we've learned quite a bit, you know, over the past couple of years that media is equally guilty of, you know, uh, not, not vetting certain information and not, not being, um, forthcoming and 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 sometimes not erring on the side of caution and just kind of going with it because it sounds good or it's going to you know it's going to get more publicity it's going to get more attention drive more you know viewers to the network and uh and it's a shame because i i think that you know mainstream media has lost some credibility and um and I say that in general because, you know, there are many exceptions to that to that statement. But uh, I, I've been pretty disappointed in media. I got to I got to say that for sure. I agree with you, Michael. And, you know, the challenge in these days because of social media, because of the Internet, things can be reported as they're happening. Correct. Uh, when when back in the day of my great uncle Harry, God, God rest his soul, he was uh, a teenager on a battleship down in uh, Central America. You know, by the time word got back, it was two weeks after the fact, uh, the gunboat diplomacy that went on. Um, but as time went forward, uh, the press became more a part of what was going on and embedded themselves, and we allowed it. And what's interesting is, in Rumsfeld's book, Known and Unknown, he, he kind of laments uh, allowing that first photograph to be taken. He laments uh, being so transparent right. uh, at the Operation Guantanamo Bay because the press decided to do whatever they wanted to with it rather than report the truth or a real story. Now, I don't claim to have the whole truth on Guantanamo Bay. God knows I was there six months in the beginning. But I do claim to have a real story. And I think the more that people go out and read these real stories, my favorite reading is always uh, nonfiction, uh, first-hand accounts of of what goes on. And I think they're the most valuable because even though you don't have to believe everything you're reading, it gives you a different perspective. And I think one of the most important books, one of the most important books ever ever uh, put together, was a book where I had a a personal narrative in. Uh, it's called Operation Homecoming. Uh, it was edited by Andrew Carroll, and it was put out in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, and it's 100 military personnel and their loved ones talking about their experiences through deployment. And I think it's the first 
uh, wartime anthology that include the loved one's perspective. Wow. And what goes on, because I didn't go to war by myself. My wife and kids experienced the war in their own That's life. right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I had, mean, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say that the day I left for Iraq, which was the 14-month tour, including training and debriefing, I I had a breakdown. We were in the airport at, at McGuire Air Force Base. I was ready to get on this bird and, and leave my family for 14 months. And I just began sobbing uncontrollably. And it occurred to me after I got a hold of myself what was going on. I was grieving my own death. I was grieving the loss of my family. And I think many soldiers who get deployed go through that. And those yes. who don't are, are ineffective in the battlefield because they're so worried about their family. Oh, you know, I haven't heard from my wife today. And I'm, you know, there were guys like that and gals like that that I knew. And I'm going, wow, you can't really function if that if you're so preoccupied. And it's, so, you know, to your audience for, and and this was part of that um, that movie Hurt Locker, the very first thing you see in the Hurt Locker is that war is a drug. And it is for some people. But you see through the movie, and near the end, when the guy comes home, and he just can't freaking function. Right. It, it, there, you know, it, there's just too many things going on, and it's not the thing I'm trained to do. Being in the military deployed in a war zone is addictive because it's so simple. Yes. You don't have to think about what to wear. You don't think about what you're going to do, what you're going to eat. You know, everything is planned out for you. So the only unknown is what's going to happen to you. And you have right. to reconcile that. You have to deal with that. So the sobbing, the, the mourning, you know, I, I began to understand what was going on. Um, I mourn the death of my family. I mourn the death of my wife. I mourn my own death to be able to focus on what my job was. Yeah, and, and you know, that's such such an important point that, you know, it's not only the service the service person, you know, uh, but it's their family that essentially is serving as well because, you know, they're sacrificing, uh, they're sacrificing, you know, their loved one who's going to serve. And, and, and it's the same with, with first responders, you know, although with, with military, you know, they're going to be gone for a period of time, whether it's six months, nine months, 12 months, 24 months, you know, depending on the assignment and, and what's going on. And, and the family is affected. And, and I know that uh, you have five children. um, And what are their ages? 21 to eight. Wow. You've got the entire span. (laughs) I do. And the last one is the girl. I got four boys and a girl and she's, she's just tremendous. Uh, Each one of my children is awesome. Uh, But I think every, every father should have a daughter. Yes, I have two. (laughs) I have a 10 and a 14 year old. Yep. 10 and 14. God bless you. So, so I know. There, there's definitely that special um, bond, and, and I'm sure that and, uh, that was ahead. an adjustment. That it was an adjustment, you know, that Daddy was was going to war, if you will. 
kind of heartbreaking. And yeah. I talk about it in the book. You know, it's if people say describe your book, well, it's um, for me, it's two part family, one part military, because the thing that that didn't happen to me when I went to Gitmo was I didn't go through the mourning process. Um, email was sort of available once a week. I had phone calls, but I had thought about my family all the time. I felt bad. I felt guilty for sure. leaving a two day old infant. Um, one of my kids, and I put this in the book, thought I was lost. Uh, you know, how, how do you how do you reconcile? How do you deal with that? How do you function when when you know that your family is suffering? It, it's a right. very difficult thing. Sure. And, uh, it wasn't until I w- went to Iraq that I I went through that that grieving process, and you don't know what you don't know. So. You know, and there's nobody there talking to you about it. You don't really talk so much about your your feelings with your uh, associates there. You talk about how much you miss people and stuff, but you don't really get into these deep discussions about why you're feeling what you're feeling, and it's okay to feel that way. And uh, you know, you have to leave that uh, in your hooch. Your hooch is where you sleep at night. You know how, how I'm a manager of people, so sometimes my workers, my employees, my staff bring their problems to work, and I say, "Well, let's talk about your problem. We'll get you some help, but you got to leave that outside." Right. You know, you, when you're here, you have to focus on what you're here for. So, right. Um, when you when you're in a war zone, Michael, it's twenty four seven, three sixty five. You're at work. Correct. <laughs> so, right. There's no coffee break. Uh, There's no. You know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm off this weekend. Don't don't call me. I'm yeah. off. <laughs> it's funny, you know that they say you know war is ninety nine percent boredom and one percent sheer terror, and uh, that's pretty much the case. But you don't know right. when that one percent is coming. So right. uh, I think I also put in there. You know, there was a or in my next book I'm going to put in uh, about my experience in Iraq. It's it's kind of. It, it hits you because when you're training for battle and you have like an incoming drill, you know, you lie flat, blah, 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 you wait for the all clear. But in a war zone, there's no all clear. So at Abu Ghraib, once we're in the dining facility, we hear the explosions go off, and we just kind of look at each other because there's really nothing you could do. And one of, one of the new guys says, well, is it all clear? Can we leave? And we're like, dude. Right. <laughs> It's like at any time you can get, and we we used uh, an improper uh, form of this word, but you get blowed up. Right. You don't want to get blowed up, but at any time that can happen to you. Right. And when I first got back from Iraq, I was angry. I was pissed off because it didn't look like anybody around here, around home, knew we were at war. And I was angry. And, uh, you know, I had to stop myself from driving in the middle of the road to avoid IEDs. And people weren't weren't acting the way people acted in Iraq. And then it finally hit me. I, I felt like slapping myself and saying, that's why we do what we do, so people back home can go about their lives. Correct. That's why we do what we do. That's why I'm so impressed with the people who joined the military after 9-11. Yes. Those are my heroes. <laughs> I was already yeah. in it. But those who yeah. raised their right hand after 9-11, now th- those are some some U.S. heroes that we should all be grateful for and the veterans. 
So. Um, yeah, and and you know, uh, I think, um, and, and I mentioned this on on the show last week when I had Michael on on as a guest from Tel Aviv that you know I think our enemies and I'm including terrorists in that whole have always underestimated uh, America and mm. and uh, and our ability to to really sustain all kinds of things you know um and and what what they have uh what they have underestimated us on is that you know when you attack us we don't flee we don't retreat we come together stronger than ever and we kick ass that's it absolutely you know the, the you're not going to going to find a better prepared or better trained or a more dedicated armed forces than the United States of America And, and, you know, um, this is the best country in the world. This is the country that people flee to when, when they're looking to be protected, when they're looking for safe Harbor, they come to the United States. This is, this is where they come. You know, they're not fleeing to other countries. They're fleeing here. Yeah. Okay. There may be, uh, you know, a small portion of people that go somewhere else, but for the most part, people come to America for new opportunities, new challenges, you know, a new life. This is where they come. Uh, yeah, but you know, I tell you what, you better the follow the law have... getting in here. What's that? I said you better follow the law getting in here because the people That's who right. made this country so great that you want to come to fought and died for it. Yes. Fought and died for Absolutely. it. We had a revolution. We had a civil war. Yeah. Things are not perfect here. By any stretch, but you know what? It's the best place on earth, and it's going to stay right. that way. But unfortunately, yeah. now we have to project our power and influ- influence outside our borders. We're still in Germany, Japan, and Italy, seventy-two years after end of World War II, not as occupiers or oppressors, but as liberators and friends. That's right. And those right. those ten uh, those ten amazing, most powerful power pro- projection flat platforms on the, on the planet called U.S. Navy carrier groups also help project that power and influence. Our nearest uh, uh, competitor has one. And the the mainstream media try to make it seem like, oh, the Russians, the Chinese, uh, nobody is going to tell us what to do, where to go, when to do it, and how to do it. It's not going to happen. And before uh, uh, President Trump was elected, uh, in my blogs and writings, on uh, foreign affairs, I said, look, all we need to do in the Middle East is send in the United States Marine Corps, Trump sent them back to Afghanistan, and the 82nd Airborne, Trump sent them back to Iraq, and take care of business, and then stay. And then stay, like we did in Germany, Japan, and Italy, and come up with a Middle East Marshall Plan. Because if if people can be prosperous, People will not try to kill you. If all, all any human being wants to do, Michael, and you know this, is provide for their family and mm-hmm. live a peaceful life, right. and not be bothered every day with some nonsense. Well, Middle East people are like that too. In fact, and, and this is also pissed me off. Excuse my language about um, mainstream media. While I was in Iraq, every regular Iraqi I met 
would thank us. In fact, when wow. I was at the reception center at Abu Ghraib, the uh, ministers from the uh, Department of Human Rights, two Iraqi guys, uh, visited me. I gave them a tour of the in-processing center. And at the end of the tour, they both looked me right in the eye and said, thank you so much for leaving your family and risking your life to come here and help us. Wow. So they they know what's going on. They appreciate right. our help. They did not want us to leave. Right. They want us there now, and they want us to stay. And as time goes on, like we did in Germany, Japan, and Italy, will we pay the price to subsidize their security and safety and defense? Yes, we will, because that's what we do. You know, I had a I had a daydream while I was in Iraq. When I was downtown Baghdad, in the green zone, and I was looking around, and I said, "You know what? This is like the the um, birthplace of civilization, basically." I would love to be able to bring my wife and kids to Iraq and show them the places uh, where I was and show them these uh, these phenomenal uh, monuments and and uh, these museums and just show them the rich culture of the, these people in this land. Right. I don't know if that will ever happen, but that's a dream of mine to be able to do that. Um, while I was a teacher in New York City public high schools, I taught in a school that was across Manhattan from the UN, and many of the UN workers sent their children to this public high school. Uh, it's called Humanities High School. On oh yeah, Street. sure. Yeah, I'm originally from New York, Avenue. so yeah, yeah. So you know my stomping grounds, my old stomping grounds. So I was a baseball coach, and when you know it, I had an Iraqi baseball player on my team, and his father was an Iraqi diplomat, and uh, what a great kid, uh, and. Today, he's married. Uh, he's an engineer. He lives in Colorado. Uh, he joined the, the, the Army Reserves. Um, but they're, they're a very intelligent people, and they have a history that's amazing. And uh, there's no reason why we can't develop a Middle East Marshall Plan with, of course, uh, the Arab states taking uh, most of the responsibility. They can sure, certainly afford it. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, all these... Uh, oh sure. The Emirates, they can all afford a Middle East Marshall Plan, right? But do they have the political will? Do they have uh, the desire to do it? Um, and I think that's something that, if not Donald Trump, uh, people that he hire in his uh, administration can help move us toward that. So he's done the first piece. He sent the Marines back to Afghanistan. 82nd Airborne is now back in Iraq. Those guys don't mess around. In fact. The Islamists hate Marines. They hate Marines because Marines will kill you if you're doing the wrong thing, and they will not talk to you first. <laughs> you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this is what, what got me about Benghazi, too, Michael. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, because I, I watched the movie 13 Hours, and I'm like, yes. what? Yes. There should not be an embassy in any country without a full contingent of uniformed United States Marines. Right. I said it uniformed United States Marines because right. they represent the best of us. They represent the best of our traditions and they are bad. You know what? They yeah. will ruin your day if you're doing the wrong thing. And that's, that's right. what we need to pro 
we need to project that image to the rest of the world. That right. this is what we're about. We're about security first. You try to hurt us, and we're going to get you back. And 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 we're and it's going to be game over. You know yes. when when we when we send in our troops, you know it's like uh, something I reposted on social media um, a couple of days ago, and it's got it's got a photo of you know some some Americans. Uh, with a flag, in a boat, rowing, and it says, Americans, willing to cross a frozen river to kill you, in your sleep, <laughs> on Christmas. Totally not kidding. We've done it. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing so hard because I think I retweeted that yesterday. I, I love that. Yeah, possibly, it's, possibly. You know, and it's so it's true. It's awesome. Uh, you know, it is so true. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I love it. You know, I mean, uh, the thing I, ha- I had reposted some time ago that uh, Yvonne Ridley probably wouldn't wouldn't enjoy too much is uh, it's got the American Eagle, the colors of the flag. And it says uh, uh, waterboarding is our way of baptizing terrorists with freedom. No, she wouldn't like that, but I like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> She's actually so, pro-America. She she loves America. She loves the United States. And uh, it's it's just a an interesting personality. I hope yeah. you get to, to meet her and have her on your show. It, yeah, it no, I, definitely... I'd, I'd love to. You know, um, we had, like I said, Mai Golan, who, who's uh, who's an activist from Israel, uh, from Tel Aviv, who was on last week. And, and and you know, I'll say it again. I have friends that are Muslim, and they're very good people. Uh, I don't I don't believe them to be terrorists or, or even to be supportive of any terrorist activity. Um, it's, it's a shame because all of the terrorists, you know, that we've had happen to be Muslim. So, you know, it kind of gives, it kind of gives a, a bad reputation to those of the Muslim faith. But, you know, the reality is, there are some very good people that I know that are Muslim that are very devout in their faith and in their practice that do not condone, you know, any type of uh, violence uh, or, you know, acts of, of terrorism. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I, I, I wanted to say that just because, you know, I, I don't want it to seem like we're bashing those of the Muslim faith. I mean, uh, the Muslim faith and faith. <laughs> um, up in yeah. up in New York right now, there's a lot of country controversy going on with uh, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, which occurs every year in June. And hmm. the organizers of that parade have decided to honor someone who essentially was a jailed domestic terrorist, if you will. Uh, who, you know, uh, had ties to the FALN. And this is causing a lot of controversy in New York, right in New York City, um, because now a lot of the police, the uh, fraternal police associations and organizations like the Hispanic Society of the NYPD uh, and some other organizations have pulled out of the parade which which is you know we've never before seen something like this it's supposed to happen june 11th wow. 
FALN kingpin Oscar Lopez Rivera is to be honored as a national freedom hero at this event. He's 74 and had his 70-year sentence commuted by, of course, outgoing President Barack Obama in January. He spent nearly 36 years in prison on conspiracy charges for his ties to the Puerto Rican nationalist group, which was responsible for more than 100 bombings in the 70s and 80s, including a 1982 blast at NYPD headquarters that left an officer maimed and a 75 attack that killed four at uh, Francis Tavern in the financial district. So, you know, he, he, here's here's an example of someone who's not a Muslim, who's who's a right. Puerto Rican. And, uh, you know, they're they're planning on honoring him. Um, and, and, you know, this That's is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was a domestic terrorist, you know, so uh, and I don't I don't believe that he's a Muslim. So, you know, we have we have our fair share of others as well. Um Let's uh, as we wrap up, and, and and I know I've I've probably kept you more than you wanted to. I was hoping you weren't looking at your watch, so I could no, I'm I not. could continue to push you. <laughs> I, I don't have soccer till twelve fifteen. Oh, okay. but I got to feed right, the good. soccer player. Yes. <laughs> I got to feed the soccer player soon. That's right. So, uh, so if any of our listeners uh, want more information, uh, if they want to order your book, uh, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. Or uh, you also you also did Theodore, a personal narrative, published in 2006. Um, right. So if they want to order uh, Operation anything, Homecoming, yeah. yes, yeah, they're on, they're on uh, Amazon. Uh, you can get the digital version, Kindle version. Uh, the soft cover is the second edition, has an additional 14 pages. Uh, many of it in the epilogue. My publisher wanted me to get in. Um, you know, some thoughts about uh, things like um, Mr. Hicks, the Australian uh, who was kept at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, okay. My thoughts on the death of uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, David Hicks, yeah, that's who it was. And um, so th- those are additions to uh, the original version in hardcover, but you can get any edition you want uh, through Amazon.com. Okay. I, I have uh, I have the soft cover. I'll just call it the old fashioned edition. Because <laughs> I, I no, don't that like is to the read second digital edition. books. Okay. Yeah, you have. The, I, yeah, you have the. I don't like to version. read digital books. I, I like to have it in my hand. I like to be able to make notes and mark pages and stuff like that. So. Oh, absolutely. That's that's me and, as well. And 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 your website. Give us your website. Yeah, I have uh, I have a couple. I have um, a Facebook page which is called uh, after my book is Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. If you look that up on Facebook, you'll find my Facebook page. I keep current stories about Gitmo on there, but there's also some photos and other things that are personal. Uh, I also have a blog, and my blog is. Uh, my political and other writings, sometimes there's stuff about Guantanamo Bay, sometimes not. Uh, it is Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay.com. All one okay. word, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay.com. And those are my, uh, my blog posts. Wonderful. And, and also, um, if you want to follow 
uh, Monty on Twitter. Uh, you can follow him MJ Granger number one. MJ Granger and the and the number one. You can follow him on Twitter, and uh, he's pretty responsive. Uh, you definitely want to get a copy of his book, Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay: A Memoir of a Citizen Warrior. Um, to get to get an interesting perspective, I think a very realistic perspective, um, not only of of some politics and, and other things that that happen uh, in this type of situation, but uh, but also you know a look at how operations work, particularly joint operations. Um, we thank you so much, Monty, for for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that we'll be in touch soon. I know that uh I know you have to get ready for for soccer. Um, <laughs> any uh any last uh, thoughts? Oh, just uh first thank you, a uh, longtime friend uh on social media and really a voice of uh a true American uh that you are and I think we should all be grateful for what you do. For all of Thank us. You. Uh, very Thank you. Very grateful for what that. you do. Uh, but just encouragement to folks out there to read as much as you can from as many uh, non-fictional sources as you can. Uh, try to get those books and readings from people who have been there and seen it firsthand. Uh, those are absolutely the best. Uh, I'm not saying that, that we have the whole story, but you can put the pieces together. I believe the American people are very intelligent. Uh, they have good instincts, and they know when they're being lied to. Uh, and I think, quite frankly, we're all getting fed up with the lies. And, um, you know, we want to make America great again, and we can do it if we do it together. But thank you so much for your time and your support. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you and your family and all those serving uh, in the Armed Forces of the United States on Armed Forces Day and every day. Um, if you If you happen to tune in late, and you want to listen to the show, the podcast will be uploaded uh, within the next 20 to 30 minutes. So you're able to listen to the to the show in its entirety. Um, you can always call in whenever you have a question or a comment. That number is 929-477-1785. That's 929-477-1785. Uh, we're going to have another show uh, coming up Monday evening, uh, Monday evening at 8 p.m., and uh, we're going to have Danielle McLaughlin, uh, who is going to be our special guest, and uh, we'll get another perspective on things. You know, that's the that's the wonderful thing about about having the show and and being able to to have different guests on. Um, she is a, a liberal commentator on U.S. law and politics on Fox and Fox Business and on CNN. Uh, she's a lawyer, author and uh, columnist so uh, she's going to be coming on the show monday night so we hope that you can tune in um and i guess you know it is appropriate to close out with uh, the national anthem by janine stang uh, i hope that that you can support her efforts um she is the national anthem girl and goes around the country singing the national anthem at all special events and she does a lot for our uh, american veterans um, go to her website, nationalanthemgirl.org. Again, that's www.nationalanthemgirl.org. Support her efforts. Uh, she's traveling all around the world 
um, and traveling all around the country singing our national anthem. Uh, I don't know how another country would feel if she traveled uh, to their country <laughs> to sing the anthem. But, um, you know, uh, she's got an amazing voice. She's she's amazing. She called me the other day. I just want to say this before we close. She called me the other day because she knew about uh, Julio and Andrea Peralta. Uh, Andrea, who's who's undergoing surgery, and Julio, who, you know, is an American serviceman, career U.S. Army. And she called me up and she said, listen, I'm about 20 minutes from Johns Hopkins right now. If uh, if they need anything, I will go there right now. And that was just so touching. It really was. Um, so, Janine, I know you're listening. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Um, and now we're going to go to the National Anthem by Janine Stang. Gives me goosebumps every time I hear Janine Stang. Just amazing, amazing. We thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, you've been tuned in to the Michael Calderon Show. If you have um, a question, comment, or suggestion, uh, send us a message through the show page. Uh, we thank you so much. God bless you, and God bless these United States of America.